verses 1 through 11. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you exhorting that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, though you know all things, that Jesus, having once saved a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheme glorious ones. But Michael, the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men blaspheme all the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the error of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And the book of Jude is a fresh reminder that in order to be a spiritual, healthy church, we must recognize that although there are many threats to the church coming from the outside world, it's the threats coming from inside the church that are most destructive to the health of the church. One man said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside our bounds. Previously, I've stated, going through these sermons, that Jude has an analytical mind, and therefore Jude writes an analytical letter or sermon in which we're going through. Analytical letters offer a clear point of view. They're well organized around a main idea. They address opposing arguments and are thoroughly supported by primary and secondary sources. And as we've looked, Jude 3 the purpose of this letter and determine that every believer in the church is supposed to contend earnestly for the faith in their local church community and then in the broader church community. And then in Jude 4, we saw that the problem and danger for the church is that certain persons have crept in unnoticed who deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. 
And I've said that the best word to describe these people are imposters. One who imposes on others, a person who assumes a character for the purpose of deception, a deceiver under false character. And we've seen, we've said that these people sneak into the church and they say they believe one thing. They say they're going to be a blessing to the church, but they are not what they say they are. They are deceivers, imposters. And then we've been going through, we started in Jude 5, but Jude 5 verses 19, we will see the primary and secondary sources that Jude uses to warn all those in the church community that those who do not come to faith in Jesus Christ and remain in the faith in Jesus Christ will receive judgment and condemnation. Jude also points out the root sins and the fruit sins of these false Christians followed by their judgment and condemnation from our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Also in Jude, verses 5 through 19, Jude will give us detailed descriptions of these false Christians by using examples from the Old Testament scriptures, Jewish traditions, and similitudes of nature and promise to help the church get a clear picture of who these imposters may be and how to identify them amongst God's elect so that you can contend for the faith. So today our focus will be on Jude, verse 9. So if you have your Bible open there, just keep it there. I'll read this one more time. Jude 9. But Michael, the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Have you read this story in your Old Testament? Have you read about Moses arguing with the devil over the body of Moses? If you have, you have a different Bible than I have. It's not in there. So this story comes from a book that is known as the Testament of Moses, or the Assumption of Moses. And we don't know who the author of this book was, and no religious group has ever considered this book to be canonical or a part of the Bible. But that's where this story comes from. The ending of this book no longer exists, but scholars have used early Christian sources to reconstruct the end of the Testament of Moses And it gives this account of Moses' burial. I'll read this to you. Joshua accompanied Moses up Mount Nebo, where God showed Moses the land of promise. Moses then sent Joshua back to the people to inform them of Moses' death, and Moses died. God sent the archangel Michael to remove the body of Moses to another place and bury it there. But Samuel, the devil opposed him, disputing Moses' right to an honorable burial. The devil brought against Moses a charge of murder because he smote the Egyptian and hid his body in the sand. But this accusation was not better than slander against Moses. And Michael, not tolerating the slander, said to the devil, May the Lord rebuke you, devil. At that, the devil took flight, and Michael removed the body to the place commanded by God where he buried it with his own hands. Thus, no one saw the burial of Moses. 
And to this day, nobody knows where Moses was buried. Our Bible doesn't tell us. So Jude had just come out of three examples from the Old Testament, and then he takes us into the story of the Jewish traditions. Why did Jude use this story? One commentator, he gives us two options that are very plausible. A. Jude may have viewed this story as a popular legend with which both he and his readers were familiar and which he could use to illustrate his point. To use an analogy, he may be doing what the modern preacher does when he says, to illustrate the new world in which Christians live. As Dorothy said to Toto, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. The preacher is not assuming that the Wizard of Oz is an authoritative source or even that the story it tells is true. It is a fictional work that serves at this point to illustrate a truth. Could Jude regard the story about Michael and the devil in a similar way? It is entirely possible. His readers evidently held apocalyptic literature like the Assumption, the Testament of Moses, in in high regard. And it would be entirely natural for him to appeal to a story that they knew well. We cannot be sure of this. However, and some would argue that it would be would have been difficult for Jude's readers to see the difference between this story and the Old Testament examples in this section. And as I read it, it sounded like an Old Testament story, although it's not in there. The second option, then, it is, is to assume that Jude believes that this incident really did take place. This does not mean, however, that Jude thinks that the book from which the story is taken is canonical or even totally accurate. It would mean only that Jude believes that this story is true. How would he know that? We must, I think, at this point, fall back on our belief in the inspiration of the Bible. Jude wrote under the direction of the Spirit of God, who led him to this particular passage and kept him from citing other testaments that did not contain true stories. So we don't know which one of these options was Jude's option. I don't know. He spent time with Christ after Christ rose from the dead. Maybe this was one of the stories they went over. I don't know. Like one pastor said, I'm a little bit squishy on this. But with that said, let's take a look at verse 9 here. And we can make some applications for our own considerations here. So, but Michael, the archangel. And what does archangel mean? And the word archangel means the chief angel and is equivalent to the term prince or prince of angels. And we see this word used in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord himself would descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And what does the scripture say about Michael, the archangel? Well, in the book of Daniel, the name Michael belongs to the angel who is one of the chief princes, Daniel 10, 13, and the great prince who protects the people Israel, Daniel 12, 1. 
He opposes and overcomes demons who Satan has sent to influence the rulers of Persia and Greece. Daniel 10, 13, and 20. So we kind of see who he is and what he does. In the book of Revelation, we see Michael is the leader of the heavenly armies that fight Satan and his fallen angels. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. And there was a war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And it started by saying, Michael and his angels were waging war with the dragon. So those are the only spots we see Michael, the archangel, in the Bible. So back to that verse. But Michael, the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil... So Jude says that Michael was disputing with the devil. And the word disputing means contending by words or arguments. So this archangel was contending, which is what we've been told to do. Jude says that they were arguing about the body of Moses. And the word arguing means inventing and offering reasons, disputing, discussing, or accusing. You can have all of those in that arguing. So we read in the story, according to the Jewish tradition, Michael was contending with the devil about the burial of Moses' body as the devil was accusing Moses of sin and rejecting Moses' right to an honorable burial. And the devil is known for being the accuser of the people of God. Revelation 12.10 Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. It seems he's been thrown down to the earth and he stands accusing God's people day and night in the sight of God. So he was accusing Moses in this story. He, he didn't want Moses to have an honorable burial because he said that Moses was a murderer. Was it true that Moses killed an Egyptian? You're right, it was true. It was true. He was not bending the truth on that. Exodus 2, 11 and 12. Now it happened in those days that Moses had grown up And he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian striking a Hebrew and one of his brothers. So he turned this way and that. And he saw that there was no one around. So he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Then he went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were struggling with each other. And he said to the wicked one, Why are you striking your companion? But he said, Who made you a ruler over ruler and judge over us. Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. So the devil wasn't lying when he said Moses was a murderer. 
And he's not lying to God when he says, you and me are sinners and we deserve death. He's not lying about that. What does the Bible say about Moses' burial? Deuteronomy 34, 1-7. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pigsaw, which is opposite Jericho. And Yahweh showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain, and the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. Then Yahweh said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the command of Yahweh. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor, but no man knows his burial place to this day. Now Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So that's the, that's the story from the Bible that we have on the burial of Moses. It says God buried him. So let's go back to Jude 9 here. Michael did not dare pronounce against him, the devil, a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And look how the KJV reads. Durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. And there's just a little bit of difference there. It may help you, though, when you're studying this. But Jude says, Michael did not dare pronounce against the devil a blasphemous judgment. And Michael did not dare, meaning that he was unwilling to do anything that goes against God's law and commands. When Jude says he did not dare, he was unwilling to sin against God while he was arguing with the devil. 2 Samuel 12, 9. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? Michael was unwilling to do that. He knew there was an audience, just like when you contend for the faith, there is an audience. And he was unwilling to break the commands of God while arguing with the devil. He dare not pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So the word pronounce means to speak, to utter, to impose. So this was speaking. They were speaking with one another. They weren't just living out the truth in front of each other, right? as we talked about on Wednesday night. They were actually speaking, contending, talking. Words were being used. What is a blasphemous judgment? What does this mean? This means to make an insulting accusation or to use unworthy language that would not be found in any serious process of judgment. That's what it means. The blasphemous judgment. And you kind of saw that in that King James Version. He would not bring against him a railing accusation. They changed the wording. It doesn't say blasphemous judgment there. And we see this all the time in our culture. 
When an argument occurs between people, instead of reasoning together to come to a conclusion, they put one another down using filthy language and slanderous accusations towards each other. Usually the first thing they do in an argument is put one another down so that they can get the higher ground. They verbally call you names. They insult you so that you're stepping back and you're saying, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're knocked off your guard. They take the higher moral ground. It says Michael was unwilling to do that. Although the devil, we know, is always willing to do that. He was a slanderer and a murderer from the beginning. We see this also, this brings it out a little bit better here in 2 Peter 2.10 and 11. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones, whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. And in other words, Michael left the judgment of Satan in God's hands when he said, the Lord rebuke you. So he won't insult the devil and he leaves the judgment of the devil in God's hands. And what does the Lord rebuke you mean? What does it mean when you say that to Satan or to somebody else? And the simple answer is that Michael called upon the Lord to silence the devil. So Michael was letting the true judge, God himself, deal with the devil while Michael resumed to the task at hand, which was the burial of Moses' body, according to the story. So you get this picture. They're arguing. They're contending. And Michael says, the Lord rebuke you. And all he's saying is, the Lord silence you. I have a job to do. I will not argue with you anymore. That's what it means. The Lord rebuke you. We get a picture of this in a similar situation that took place and is linked together with the same words, the Lord rebuke you. And this is in Zechariah 3, 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand delivered from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel, and he answered and spoke to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, while the angel of the Lord was standing there. And we see here that Satan is accusing Joshua for being a sinner, which is true of Joshua, Moses, and all of us. But the Lord silences Satan by saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then the Lord gives us a beautiful picture of what the gospel of Jesus Christ has accomplished for God's elect. The Lord has Joshua's filthy garments removed and clothes Joshua with festal robes and a clean turban. And all of this is right in front of Satan. 
And listen to what the Lord says in Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanliness and from all of your idols. This is what the gospel does to God's elect. It's him that cleanses you. Satan is silenced because it's God working. It's not you working. And so we've been looking at the root sins and the fruit sins of the imposters in Jude verses 5 through 8. And we'll eventually look at more fruit sins in verses 10 through 19 with the exception that these all lead to the judgment and condemnation from Jesus Christ himself. So why does Jude put verse 9 right in the middle of verses 5 through 19? And what can we learn from this verse? We kind of just looked into the verse. Now we want to just step back and say, okay, why is this verse here? What, what, what can we learn in the big picture? I'm just going to present to you three observations. And First observation. Jude gives us a picture of the complete contrast between Michael the archangel and the imposters so that the church has a better description of the imposters and can recognize these imposters more easily inside their local church so that they may contend for the faith. I'll read you the verse again. But Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And looking at the big picture, we can observe that Michael, the archangel, does not have any of the root sins that these imposters have. Therefore, Michael's fruit is totally different from the imposters. So we're looking at all this fruit from these imposters, and then all of a sudden, right in the middle, we have Michael, the archangel, and his story. And Michael does not have the root sin of unbelief in God, and therefore Michael does not have the fruit sin of blaspheming the glorious ones. And Michael does not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against the devil, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael believes in the sovereignty of God and leaves the judgment of God to God, who is the judge. You can see it right there in that verse. But Jude says these imposters who have the root sin of unbelief in God have the fruit sin of blaspheming the glorious ones. They are always blaspheming God's appointed servants. But Michael the angel won't even blaspheme the devil. Jude says the imposters, because of their unbelief, they blaspheme the things which they do not understand. They are grumblers, mockers, worldly-minded, and not having the Spirit. But Michael's just the opposite. Yet he doesn't have the Spirit. And we'll look at that in a little bit. Michael does not have the root sin of stubbornness rebellion, and therefore Michael does not reject the authority of Jesus Christ. Michael has kept his own domain and kept his proper abode, and therefore Michael is taking care of the body of Moses as he was commanded to do, 
And Michael did not dare to do anything against God's law and commandments. Michael was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. He did not reject authority. Jude says of the imposters, their root sin of stubbornness rebellion has caused their fruit sin of rejecting authority, and they deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Remember, they come in saying that Jesus is Lord in order to look like the Christians in the church, but their lives prove that Jesus is truly not their Lord, but sin is still their master. But we don't see that in Michael. Michael does not have the root sin of pride. Therefore, Michael does not have the fruit sin of defiling the flesh. And according to the story, Michael does not worship the body of Moses or make it an idol. But Michael takes Moses' body and buried it according to the commands of God. And he buried it with his own hands. Michael has such a high view of God that even though Michael is an archangel ranked high above Satan, and seemed to have every right to rebuke the devil, Michael avoided uttering a rebuke of his own and said, the Lord rebuke you. You can see all this right in this verse. Michael shows his humility as he refused to place himself as high as God or even try to take the place of God, but he entrusted himself and his situation to his creator. Jude says the imposter's root sin of pride has caused their fruit sin of defiling the flesh. Jude says that the imposter's pride has caused them to turn the grace of God into sensuality. They've become like unreasoning animals. They only care for themselves. They are without fear. They are ungodly. They follow their own lusts. Their mouths speak arrogantly. They flatter people for the sake of their own gain. That's what Jude says about these imposters whose root sin is pride. Second observation, we can look at the big picture. Second observation from this verse. Jude uses this story to keep the church humble and to help the church from falling into the same sins as the imposters. And what do I mean by this? I'm going to read it one more time. But Michael the archangel... When he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Jude could have used scripture to compare the person and works of Jesus Christ against the root sins and fruit sins of these imposters. But instead, Jude uses a story of a lesser being, Michael. Michael the archangel to show that even the angel produces the fruit that God created that angel to produce. God created Michael for a purpose, and Michael keeps to that purpose. Why would this humble us? Well, by our nature, we are people who compare ourselves with others, and because Jesus is in heaven, we cannot see him. So we choose not to compare ourselves with Jesus, even though we read the scriptures. We look to the left, we look to the right, and we compare ourselves with others around us. So we choose to compare ourselves with the people around us, which can cause us to think more highly of ourselves than we should. So when we compare ourselves to Michael, it's a little bit different than comparing us with Jesus Christ. 
And as we looked in Jude verses 5 through 8, we saw that when these root sins of unbelief, stubbornness, rebellion, and pride, followed by their fruit sins, were amongst the people of God, that there was always opportunity for the people of God to sin in the same way. But we just looked at the verse where Michael, the archangel, was contending with the devil and did not fall into the same sin. And an, an example of that is we just read the story. Moses can't go into the promised land. Why? Because he got angry and sinned in his unbelief and struck the rock instead of obeying the word of God and speaking to the rock. And all the people around him were blessed with water. And God says, you denied my holiness. You were in unbelief. You will not go to the promised land. And that can happen to each one of us. We can fall into the same sin as the culture around us. So let's compare ourselves to Michael from the scriptures in order to keep us humble and to show us that we should not sin like the imposters. What do we know about these angels? God made the angels to worship him and to be his ministers for the purpose of ministering to those who will inherit salvation. These angels worship God, they minister for him, and they minister to the Christians. That's their job. Hebrews 1, 6 and 7. And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flaming fire. One fourteen, Are they not all ministering spirits sent to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So these angels are made to minister to us. And we see them minister to Christ when Christ is out in the, the desert after he's been tempted, tempted by the devil. But how did he make us? God made man in his own image to bring God glory. But those angels, they're not made in the image of God. He did not make them in the image of God, but he made you in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Another comparison between us and Michael or the angels. Jesus did not spare the angels when they sinned, as we saw in Jude 6 and according to Hebrews 2.16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. When the angels sin, or if they sin, there is no salvation for these angels. But God brings salvation for you and I. Jesus came to save sinners through the power of his gospel. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, 
that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to the angels, but he, help, he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There is no propitiation for the angels, but he makes it for you. Another comparison. The angels will never experience the saving power of the gospel, but they long to look into these things. 1 Peter 1, 10-12 Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that what they were not serving themselves, but you, and these things which have now been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. They don't even have an understanding. They will never experience the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet we can look at Michael, and he is totally obedient to God. That should humble us. One more comparison. I can't find a verse in the Bible that says that God dwells in the angels. But the Bible says that God dwells in all believers whom he has caused to be born again. The triune God does not dwell in angels, yet Michael, the archangel, is perfectly obedient to God. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. This is God talking about you if you are born again. His spirit's in you, but it is not in the angels. That only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. John 14, 20. On that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Christ in you, but not in Michael. Colossians 1.27 to, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. Christ in you. So now after comparing ourselves to Michael, the archangel, we should be humbled at his obedience to the Lord and encouraged not to fall into the sins of the imposters around us while we contend for the faith.
Look how much more we have in Christ. Third observation. This verse should encourage our church that we can, by God's grace, contend for the faith with mercy, peace, and love. If Michael the archangel can contend with the devil and prevail, then we can contend for the faith against the, the, the imposters and prevail. It may not look like we're winning, but as long as we're sharing the gospel, contending for the faith, that body of truth about God, about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, we are prevailing. It's the devil that wants to silence us. It's the imposter that wants to silence us. We can contend for the faith because Christ loves us and we love him and we keep his commandments. John 14, 20 and 21. On that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. Christ will give you all you need to contend for the faith. We can be encouraged to contend for the faith against the imposters and not follow them because the Spirit is in us. 1 John 4, 4, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. You can contend with these imposters and not be overwhelmed by their untruths because the Spirit is in you. You can test the imposters. You can test the spirits and think biblically because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Go back, study that passage. We can contend for the faith against the imposters because... We are in Christ, and he keeps us. 1 John 5, 18-20 We know that no one who has been born of God sins, but he who was begotten of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. We can contend for the faith because he keeps us. We will not be lost. If it looks like we lost when contending for the faith, he still keeps us. And it says, he is in you, and you are in him. Jesus Christ 
This is the true God and eternal life. We can be encouraged to contend for the faith even when it looks like everybody else is running, is scattering. We can stand and we can say, this is the truth about God. This is the truth about Jesus Christ. This is the truth about the Holy Spirit. This is the truth about us, sinners, who've been saved and been made new in Christ. And now he dwells in us and we dwell in him and we've seen him and we love him even though he's in heaven and he's not right here in front of us. So we can contend for the faith knowing all of this. Amen.